Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo. And today, episode number 25, titled The Fourth Flaw, wherein we discuss a defining feature of the New York accent. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bob. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you again. No, well, last episode, it was happy almost New Year. It was December 31st. All right, you got me. Happy New Year, Mike. (laughs) Okay, as you pointed out last episode, I'd like to take a few minutes at the beginning of each episode to read some laudatory feedback from listeners of this podcast. Here we go. Marina Tronin tweeted, quote, I used to love Lexicon Valley. Sadly, Bob Garfield is a sexist pedant. P. Walsh wrote on iTunes of your offensive generalization about the value of speech of an entire population of young women. In the comment thread on Slate, Brian wrote that you came off, Bob, as, quote, shockingly condescending. And on Slate's Double X podcast, Double X managing editor Allison Benedict had this to say. Who is he to say what is annoying and what is not? I mean, I, I don't really understand. He did not articulate his objection to it. All of these comments are, of course, referring to our last episode about the disproportionate use among young American women of creaky voice or vocal fry. Young American men do it too. In fact, a bunch of listeners pointed out that I'm rather creaky, something I suspected and I think even voiced to you before we recorded that last episode. But as we mentioned, according to research over the past several years, research involving rigorous voice analysis, young American women do it twice as much as young American men and twice as much even as at least some young non-American women. Now, we got hundreds of emails about this episode. And before I let you speak, Bob, I should point out that the response fell broadly into three categories. The vast majority of people, men and women, said something like, oh my God, I've noticed this too. I didn't know what it was called, but I, like Bob, find it irritating. Some said that it drove them crazy, things like that. The second and smallest category was either people for whom this phenomenon wasn't even on the radar, they didn't quite get what we were talking about, or people for whom it wasn't really an issue at all. I would put myself into that category. I'm not particularly attuned to this, and so it's not something I ever really think about, although I was aware of it. And the third, somewhat larger category, was people who, like in the comments I read, found your attitude towards this, Bob, insulting. Some people use the M word, misogyny, but I think the more valuable critique along these lines, the one that advances the discussion, really, is the one that points out that the speech trends of young women typically come in for more criticism than the speech trends of young men, 
and that a kind of sexism might explain that. And for you, Bob, to use words like repulsive and annoying in talking about vocal fry without at least acknowledging those undercurrents came across as tone deaf. Well, the first thing I would like to say, Mike, is remember how last week I was ridiculing you for reading all these flattering, fulsome bits of praise about our show? Remember how I made fun of you about that? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I withdraw those comments. I really <laughs> liked that portion of the show. <laughs> but as to the particular allegations, Mike, first of all, I just want to highlight once again, vast majority through and with me, right? The number of complaints was actually quite small. There were only a handful, in spite of some fairly strident blog traffic on this subject, just a gigantic percentage of the people agree with me that it's an insufferable trend. But as to the question of whether this bespeaks some sort of misogyny or sexism on my part, you know, I'd like to dismiss that out of hand, but I guess I have to address it. Look, I I can't prove anything. There's no DNA test for sexism. I don't think it's true. I like women. I have daughters. I think the most interesting argument I heard, the one that really made me take pause, was a letter from a woman who said, look, I fry. I don't affect it. I don't think about it. It is so deeply internalized that making fun of my fry to me would be like the same as making fun of my looks. It's just mean. And that one made me go, whoa. Because even though I've been a critic for 35 years, the last thing I ever want to be perceived as is mean, right? Not mean, not gratuitous, not glib, not any of that stuff. And I'm like, oh, man, so, God, am I mean? But then I thought about the premise of what she said, that it's internalized, unconscious, and nothing for which she should be blamed. And I, and I guess the whole question of my irritation and those of all the others is whether this woman is right. All right. Well, if Lexicon Valley is still around, you know, a year or two from now, and if by then there's better data and more research, then, you know, certainly we'll revisit this. One last thing on this subject. I know who the Kardashians are, sort of, but I confess I had never heard them speak. And in going through the emails after about the third or fourth time of their name coming up as an example of the kind of vocal fry that I think you find especially grating, Bob, I thought, okay, I got to hear them. Turns out finding video of the Kardashians online, really easy. They're everywhere. (laughs) So for the benefit of that small category of people who didn't quite get what we were talking about, here with the last word is American socialite and television personality, according to Wikipedia, Kim Kardashian. I used to be super trendy and totally sexy, but kind of... I I look back now and I'm like, I used to want everything short and low cut and you really can't do it all. And I think that I've tried. I've tried for years. Okay, today's episode. In the late 19th century, a professor, Bob, at Columbia College named Eugene Babbitt, over the course of about six years, took extensive notes on the way native New Yorkers talk just by observing them. Babbitt was a member of the American Dialect Society and published some volumes of what he called dialect notes. He wrote 
the guards on the elevated roads, the tradespeople, some of my students, the servants in my kitchen and those of my friends, the newsboys, hawkers and barkers, the school children in school and out have all contributed material. And one of the things that all of these New Yorkers had in common, he noted, was that the letter R, especially when it occurs at the very end of a word, although also in the middle, is frequently not pronounced. He wrote, when final, the R often entirely disappears so that the word for, F-O-U-R, rhymes with law, L-A-W. Yeah, any self-respecting New Yorker doesn't say the word for, he says for. (laughs) And you, Bob, being neither a New Yorker nor self-respecting, didn't quite say it, I think, with the authenticity I uh, I heard growing up. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Uh, all right. So among my many non-skills is mimicry. And this tendency to drop R's, of course, is not exclusive to New York. It's common to a number of otherwise very different accents up and down the entire East Coast of America, in New England, and in particular Boston, in New York City, in South Carolina. There's rampant Rlessness in all of these regions, right? And the thinking is that this phenomenon evolved out of the tendency of some English people, specifically South Londoners, to drop their R's as far back as the 16 and 1700s, precisely when many English were coming here and settling on the East Coast. Now, your rendition of a New York accent, Bob, notwithstanding, and on the off chance that some listeners are not familiar with this, let's give a much better example. Who is, and I have not verified that you know the answer to this question, but I'm guessing that you do, who is Rhoda Morgenstern? Uh, That was uh, the Valerie Harper character on the Mary Tyler Moore show. She was uh, her her New York friend. (laughs) Yeah, she was. And a few years into the Mary Tyler Moore show, Rhoda's character was spun off. Rhoda leaves the Minneapolis of the Mary Tyler Moore show and moves back to New York. My name is Rhoda Morgenstern. I was born in the Bronx, New York, in December 1941. I've always felt responsible for World War II. The first thing I remember liking that liked me back was food. I had a bad puberty. It lasted 17 years. I'm a high school graduate. I went to art school. My entrance exam was on a book of matches. I decided to move out of the house when I was 24. My mother still refers to this as the time I ran away from home. Eventually, I ran to Minneapolis, where it's cold, and I figured I'd keep better. Now I'm back in Manhattan. New York, this is your last chance. All right, now let's focus for a moment on the phrase, born in the Bronx, in December. As I alluded to earlier, there are two places where an R is most likely to disappear. One is at the very end of a word, right? Rhoda doesn't say December. No, she says December. (laughs) You really are bad at that. (laughs) But you know what? I can parallel park like nobody's business and I can (laughs) open any jar with simple wrist action. So it's not like I have no skills. It's just, you know, I The other place where the R is most likely to disappear is in the middle of a word when it's preceded by a vowel and followed by a consonant. You want to give it a shot? Rhoda doesn't say born. No, she says, uh, here we go again, born. Very nice. Now, with just about every topic we talk about on this podcast, we could probably do 50 shows on the letter R. 
and you know maybe 10 or 20 of those on the phenomenon of dropping one's R's. But for the remainder of this episode and the next one, I want to focus on a kind of longitudinal study of R-dropping in New York. First, though, let's take a break here and talk about our sponsor, Audible.com. Yeah, Mike, Lexicon Valley is brought to you today by Audible.com and the letter R, or the not letter R. Nice. I like the Sesame Street illusion. Audible.com is, of course, the leading provider of audiobooks on the internet. You can choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks in their library, and they have a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a 30-day trial membership, you get one free audiobook of your choice. And I often make a recommendation here. Bob, if you had to conjure up the quintessential New York accent, who would that be? How about Woody Allen? Yes, exactly. Audible has the Woody Allen Collection, which contains two of my favorite books ever written, probably, Without Feathers and Getting Even, also Mere Anarchy and Side Effects. Do you know, Bob, where Woody Allen came up with the title for Without Feathers? I know every piece in that thing, but uh, I don't get the title. It's a play on an Emily Dickinson line, Hope is a Thing with Feathers. Ah, <laughs> God. so it gets to the existential desperation that's the center of like the first 30 years of his work and the audiobooks are read by woody allen it's fantastic 12 hours read by him that's cool to sign up for the free membership visit audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon if you don't like woody allen there are many other choices including classics and new york times bestsellers that's audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon Let's, Bob, forget about language for a moment. In the early 1950s, a sociologist named C. Wright Mills published a book called White Collar. It was about the American middle classes. He suggested in this book that middle class people in particular, when they come into contact with people of a somewhat higher class, a higher status, they will borrow prestige from them. That's the phrase he used. Uh, yeah, that scans. I mean, I think that's the entire business model of the Ralph Lauren empire, right? <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. Mills wrote, quote, the tendency of white collar people to borrow status from higher elements is so strong that it has carried over to all social contacts and features of the workplace. He then went on to name a specific workplace, department stores. He said that salespeople, quote, frequently attempt to borrow prestige from their contact with customers, and that a salesperson who works on 34th Street cannot successfully claim as much prestige as the one who works on Fifth Avenue. Now, about a decade later, in the early 1960s, a man who is now known as one of the founders, really, of modern sociolinguistics, William Labov, wondered whether this borrowing of prestige by department store employees, for example, might be evidenced in language. So like the haughty maitre d' or the, or the floor walker at uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, because the people you're catering to are high-toned and uh, affluent, you draw power from that. Yeah, exactly. You draw power, you draw dignity, you draw prestige, as Mills would say. So here is what William Labov did in attempting to sort of ferret out whether there was a kind of linguistic analog here. He identified three department stores that were clearly stratified, as he put it, which is perhaps a delicate way of saying they have different kinds of customers. 
First, Saks Fifth Avenue at the high end, Macy's and Herald Square in the middle, and at the low end, a discount department store on 14th Street called S. Klein, which is no longer around. These stores, as he points out, advertised very differently in newspapers at the time. For example, Saks could be found in the New York Times and not at all in the Daily News. Macy's advertised quite a bit in both papers, S. Klein almost exclusively in the Daily News. They were also priced differently, of course. For example, women's dresses ran about $15 in Macy's at the time, about $5 at S. Klein. He wrote, Saks is the most spacious with the least amount of goods displayed. Many of the floors are carpeted, and on some of them, a receptionist is stationed to greet customers. Klein, at the other extreme, is a maze of annexes, sloping concrete floors, and low ceilings. It has the maximum amount of goods displayed at the least possible expense. You know, Bob, when I was a kid, one of my favorite TV shows was All in the Family. Edith Bunker shopped at S. Klein. Oh, I bet she did. S. Klein is gone, but its counterparts exist still today, right? Sure. In, uh, in lower Manhattan, these warrens of uh, annexes and uh, with clothes just essentially dumped onto countertops. Yeah, and, you know, on a personal note, S. Klein opened in 1921, which is the year that one of my grandmothers arrived in this country at Ellis Island, and she lived for a time on the Lower East Side. And in my sort of poetic reimagining of that year, you know, she may have bumped into Edith Bunker at the store there. Of course, they probably wouldn't have been able to say anything to each other. My grandmother didn't speak any English when she arrived, and I don't think Edith Bunker spoke Yiddish. Yeah, uh, nor did uh, Edith Bunker, what do you call it? exist. <laughs> hey, I said poetic, right? Okay. Sachs, Macy's, S. Klein, with you so far. Okay. Now, there's this principle in physics called the observer effect, which states that the act of observing something necessarily changes it. The sort of classic example of this is checking the pressure in your tire, right? To do that, you have to let air out of the tire. Observing the pressure changes the pressure. This is an idea that linguists are very sensitive to. In other words, William Labov could have gone into these department stores, rounded up the employees, and sat them down for recorded interviews in order to analyze some characteristic of their speech. But being interviewed by a stranger off the street is really awkward and would very likely affect the way you talk. So he came up with a solution, what he called a rapid and anonymous interaction, one that occurred, as he put it, almost below the level of conscious attention. What what are you talking about, stealth sociology? In a sense, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So he would walk up to an employee, ask them a brief question in order to elicit a brief answer, a phrase, and he would ask them all the same question to elicit the same phrase. The phrase he chose was fourth floor. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's not hard to get someone to say those words and in a department store. No, and... Fourth floor, sportswear. Yeah, so you see where he's going here, right? The phrase yeah. contains the two kinds of R's that are most likely to be dropped. The R in fourth is in the middle, preceded by a vowel and followed by a consonant sound. In this case, it's a dental fricative, th. The R in floor is at the end of the word. Now, I have asserted that it should be easy to get people in a department store to utter fourth floor, but... Actually, how did he get people to utter fourth floor 
And was he holding a tape recorder when he did it? No, he wasn't. That would invalidate the anonymous part of the rapid and anonymous. People would be focusing on the tape recorder. And induce the observer effect. Exactly. No, what he did was, if he was not on the fourth floor, he would say, can you tell me where women's shoes are? If he was on the fourth floor, he would say, can you tell me what floor we're on? Incidentally, he would say floor. He points out that he himself pronounces his R's. And so he spoke as he normally would, and he dressed as he normally would. And after the employee would respond, he would lean in and say, excuse me, pretending he didn't hear them so that they would repeat it. And in the three stores combined, he did this with more than 250 employees. This is fascinating, Mike. And I'm having trouble getting my head around this because this took place in what year? 1962. Yeah, well, 60 years later, I cannot even comprehend a department store with in excess of 80 visible employees. Uh, but anyway, what, what did he discover? Well, I will tell you in the next episode. What, this is a cliffhanger? Yeah, I mentioned before <laughs> that this was going to be a two-parter, and so I think this is a kind of good place for us to stop. All right, well, th- throw us a bone here, Mike. Give us a sneak preview of something we're going to learn in the dramatic conclusion to make uh, our audience and me come back. Okay, fair enough. And, you know, this is not rehearsed. We didn't plan this, but I will tell you something. I referred to this as a kind of longitudinal study, which implies that you follow the same people over a long period of time, like Michael Apted does in the Up series of movies. I said a kind of longitudinal study because a linguist repeated this precise study, sort of retracing Labov's steps in the 1980s, and then another linguist did it again just a few years ago. What Labov found and what they found we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, if you want to write to us about dropping R's or anything else, you can do so at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can find all of our past episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please, if you have not already, subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a rating and a review. And I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's Podcasts. Oh, I think uh, I think there's someone else you want to thank, Mike, that you might have neglected two weeks ago. <clears throat> yes, right. Ida Rose Garfield for providing us with her rendition of Creaky Voice. Small fry, vocal fry, my 11-year-old. Thank you, Ida. <laughs> All right, Mikey, we done here? Yep, we are done. All right. Later, Gator. Later.